Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this not in this world. On Saturday 19th of May, Andy McCullough taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andy looks at the topic of mission. Andy's a church planter, writer and regular speaker on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Right, we're now going to do a massive change of gear and we're going to uh, jump from the world of the Old Testament and we're going to talk about mission. Mission is about how do we make the gospel come alive to this people in a way that will be relevant to them, even if that's different from how it looks somewhere else. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the, the, the theological foundation for this, which we need to do, um, really starts where the Bible's story of language starts. So the Bible's story of language starts in Genesis 10. And what happens is when Noah and his family came staggering out of the ark into a whole new world, God said to them in Genesis 9 exactly what he'd said to Adam and Eve, which was, multiply, fill the earth, be fruitful. Okay, so Noah and his sons are supposed to spread out and multiply and fill the earth. And in Genesis chapter 10, that's what you see happening. So Genesis chapter 10 is a list of all these different people, and they're all going to different places, settling there, spreading out in the earth, and you have this repeated kind of chorus in Genesis 10, which is each with his own language by their clans in their nations. So these people have this language, these people have this language, these people have this language, and it's good. That's what God wanted. Genesis 10 is like a, a celebration of diversity, okay? But then, uh, 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 like you always have, you have a villain appear in Genesis 11, and that is Nimrod. Okay, so we read here Genesis 10, verses 8 to 10, we meet Nimrod. And he's the first tyrant, he's the first totalitarian imperialist. Okay, and it says here, Cush was the first on earth to be a mighty man, Genesis 10 and 8. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like, Himrod, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before, or actually against, a mighty hunter against the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. And so Nimrod says, no, 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 why is everybody spreading out? Let's all stay here. But God had told them to spread out, but it says, no, no, let's stay here and let's build a city here, and that city is called Babel, which is Babylon, which all the way through the Bible is bad, and is the like enemy, and right in Revelation, eventually it gets torn down, doesn't it? And what does Babylon symbolise in the Bible? Sin? Yeah, like the kingdom of man, this is our way of doing things, we're going to do it this way. Okay, and so Nimrod is the first person to do this. And in Genesis 11, we see him building this city, Babel. And strangely, you turn to Genesis 11, and verse 1 it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And you think, well, what happened? We had loads of languages, but now Nimrod's building this city, and it's like he's gathering everyone and going, no, you all have to be the same. We're all going to have one language. And so he starts to 
kind of build his city, his tower reaching up to heaven, which is like a temple where you're supposed to meet God. And he's saying, you come here and we're all going to be the same. Okay? God doesn't like it. So God comes down and re-scatters all the languages and gives everybody their languages back and re-scatters the people, which is what he wanted all along. So often we read Babel as a curse, like, oh no, everyone's got different languages and we don't understand each other. Actually, it's a blessing, I believe. Now, God always wanted diversity and Nimrod tried to make everyone the same and God came down and said, no, no, have your diversity back. Have your cultures back. Have your dignity back. Speak your language. It's dignity, it's freedom, it's honour to be... Yeah? And all the way through history we've had this. So the Roman Catholic Church, that's what they were doing in the Middle Ages, was like, you can only pray in Latin. Oh, don't speak Latin. It's just like Nimrod. Yeah, you have to come to Rome to worship and you have to speak Latin. And thankfully we had the Reformation where we were like, no, no, the Bible can be translated into English. That's good news. I can understand it now. So it's kind of freedom from control. And then we meet Abraham. Now, a lot of people say the story of mission in the Bible starts with Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it does, but you have to understand the, the Nimrod context because he's contrasted with Nimrod. Nimrod's way of saving the world was let's build a kingdom and make everybody the same. Okay? And God says, no, I do want to save the world, but I'm going to do it through Abraham, which is actually the opposite of Nimrod. And so God says to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, let's read it. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And so the Abraham text is the opposite, and it's in your notes, I don't need to labour it, but it's the opposite of the Nimrod text in Genesis 11. So Nimrod was saying, come, and in the Abraham story we've got God saying, go. Nimrod was saying, let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a name for you. Yeah, it's not about trying to make a name for yourself. God says, no, no, I'm going to make a name for you. Babel's founders settled. So God had said, scatter, fill the earth, scatter. Scatter is a good word in Genesis. But then Nimrod, it says, they found a plain and they settled there, which was bad. But then God says to Abraham, no, no, I'm going to scatter you, which is good. Nimrod built one temple, this tower reaching to heaven, everyone had to worship here. Abraham, he builds altars wherever he goes. He comes to Bethel, he builds an altar. He comes to Ai, he builds an altar. He's always moving around, he's building altars wherever he goes. Abraham was called to leave his country and his father's house. In, in, in the Middle East, that means leaving everything. You're leaving your family, you're leaving who you are. You're leaving all of your identity and your honour and you're just becoming a nobody, somebody who just wanders around and has nothing. And that's what God calls, he's got no protection now, he's just on his own. He goes into scary situations. When they arrive in the promised land, there's a civil war, there's a famine. He's got no community to protect him, he's on his own. It's vulnerable. So Nimrod had said, let's build a tower to keep us safe and a city. And God says to Abraham, no, I want you vulnerable. 
Okay? I'm not going to labour it, but you can see in your notes there just this contrast then between Nimrod and Abraham. And why that's important is because later when we come to the story of Pentecost, you have exactly the same thing happen. So the Jews had got to the point where, just like Nimrod, you you had to come and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So you're a Jew, you live in another country, well, you have to come and, you know, for Passover, you have to come to Jerusalem. That's why there'd always be three million people in Jerusalem at Passover, because they come from all over the world, because you have to pray there. And you have to pray in Hebrew. You know, your language is English, I don't care, you have to come and pray in Hebrew. Okay, And so it had, it had become this kind of come to this one temple with this language and be here. Everybody be the same. And God again says, no, 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 no. And at Pentecost... <laughs> at, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and we see that everybody hears the gospel spoken in their own Dialect. The Greek word is dialectos, dialect, in their heart language. So God is saying, hey, you don't have to come to me, I'm coming to you. You don't have to learn my language, I'm learning your language. You don't have to come to this temple. The temple is wherever there are people filled with the Holy Spirit. And those people, those 3,000 that get saved on that day of Pentecost, they're not the Jerusalem church. They're from all over the Jews from all over the nations. They go back to their countries and start churches. The church in Rome, when Paul writes Romans 20 years later, there's already a thriving church there. It started at Pentecost. Visitors from Rome are there. They hear the gospel in their own language. They go to Rome and they start a church. Yeah, so you have this kind of go instead of come. Your language instead of everyone being the same. Being different. Honouring creational diversity. Does that make sense? And then right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, very famous verse, but it says that around the throne of God and of the Lamb, we see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every language. So in heaven, this creational diversity continues. Yeah, what are we going to eat in heaven? I don't know, but it's going to be food from every nation. It's definitely not just going to be sandwiches from England. (laughs) Hallelujah. And so, if, you know, if the mixture of languages was bad, then in heaven it would be gone. But somehow there's something beautiful about diversity. I'm going to love that. I'm going to learn all these. I'll have eternity to learn all these difficult languages. It would be amazing. Talk to Chinese people in Chinese. We'll have time to do it. You know? And so heaven is going to, somehow it says in, in that Revelation verse, to make them a kingdom and priests to serve our God. So God's plan was to build a kingdom, but it's to do it whilst maintaining diversity and difference and beauty and colour. And that's why the church all over the world looks different. And that's why mission should never be us turning up and just going, well, this is how we used to do it in London, so this is how we're going to do it here. And it's wrong if churches all look the same as each other and do things the same as each other. Because we should be celebrating the diversity that God has created. Amen? Amen. Okay. We see this in Jesus Christ. In the contrast between Nimrod and Abraham, when Jesus comes, he looks like Abraham. He comes from the seed of Abraham. 
He's born in a tiny, insignificant place in Bethlehem, not in the big, powerful... Yeah, the wise men come and they think, oh, let's look at Jerusalem in the palace. He's not in the palace. He's in the little village in the middle of nowhere. He's born vulnerable. As soon as he's born, they try and kill him and they're refugees. They have to leave their home and go down to Egypt, just like Abraham had to leave his home. Jesus doesn't conform to the the standards of the age. He's constantly preaching against the temple. In fact, he's being the temple in different places. So he goes to lame people who aren't allowed to come in the temple, and he heals them. You can't come here, I'm coming to you. And the whole of Jesus' thing is, you can't come to God, so God has come to you. You can't go up, so God has come down. That's what we see in the gospel. So God doesn't save the world by sending someone big and impressive like Nimrod to gather everyone and make them all the same. He saves the world by sending someone small and vulnerable like Abraham. Okay. Implications for Christian mission then. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So therefore, number one... Christianity was never supposed to have a centre. Where is the centre of Christianity? Is it in Jerusalem? Is it in Rome? Is it in um, Redding, California? Some people are like, no, God is in a certain place and you have to go there to get a blessing. No. Okay. And this map is tracking the the statistical centre. So they've taken all the Christians in the world and then gone, where is the centre of that on a map? And then tracked it. Some of you are going, yeah, but the world's round, so that doesn't work. I know, it's a picture. (laughs) And obviously it started in the Middle East, and it moved westwards for a season. And so in the the Middle Ages, the centre of Christianity was Europe. Most Christians in the world were European, yeah? And so it was like, oh, let's be missionaries and go and convert the heathen. Now that's not true anymore. I I, I hope you know that. The centre of Christianity now is near Timbuktu somewhere statistically. Um, If you took 10 Christians in the world now, only two of them would be non-Hispanic whites. Okay? If you asked an alien to come and research and say, what is a Christian? And they came to the earth to do a sample. They would either find a poor, Pentecostal, young South American woman as statistically normal Christian. Okay? Or a poor Chinese peasant farmer. There's a hundred million Christians in China. And so the statistically normal Christian is a South American woman or a Chinese peasant farmer, not a white English person. You're not normal. (laughs) But this is is important for us to understand that Christianity's centre has always been moving and always will be moving And different parts of the world go through different seasons where maybe Christianity is in an ascendancy. Most of the New Testament was written in or to Turkey. It had a spring in those days when the church was getting planted. Then it had a summer under Constantine. And the Byzantine Christian Empire was a thousand-year empire, which is quite long by modern standards. And so there was a thousand-year empire where it was like, this is a Christian empire, this is like summertime. Then they had autumn... And now, really, they've been in winter under Islam for the last 500 years. Okay? And so, and Western Europe, many would say, has had its summer and is probably in autumn now, in terms of being a Christian part of the world. 
where Christianity is aligned with culture. That doesn't mean the church is dying. Often the church is at its most alive when a nation is in winter. Okay? So the center of Christianity is always moving. Number two, God loves diversity. So Anderson says, the Babel story contains a peculiar dialectic. Humans strive to maintain unity. God's action affects diversity. Nimrod tried to make everybody the same. God came down and said, no, 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 no. I want to re-scatter everybody. Human beings seek for a center. God counters with dispersion. I told you to scatter. We see the same thing in the whole beginning of Acts where Jesus says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. But for the first eight chapters of Acts, they're only in Jerusalem. They're not doing it. They're not going to Samaria and the ends of the earth. They're just in Jerusalem. And so there's a persecution comes. And because of the persecution, then they scatter and then they preach in Samaria. And then they start going, do you see what I mean? We always tend to just stay safe. And God's like, no, 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 I told you to scatter. I told you to go. And if you don't go, I'm going to make you go. (laughs) Human beings want to be safe with homogeneity. God welcomes pluralism or diversity. Okay? Number three, missions should be centrifugal and not centripetal because of the power of differential. So what that means is centrifugal means pushing out from a center. Centripetal means trying to pull everything into a center. Okay, so Nimrod said, here's the temple, everybody come. Now, sometimes we do that with our churches. And we go, oh, this is our Sunday meeting, this is where God is. So if you want to meet God... Come to our church. Come to our Sunday meeting. Okay? Now that's not bad. It's not evil. But the question is this. What about all the people who can't come? What about all the people who don't come? If God had just stayed in heaven and said, everybody come to me, none of us would have made it. So thankfully he said, they can't come. I'll go to them. I'll go to where they are. I'll go and seek and save the lost. And so the foundation of mission is to say just staying in church and inviting people to come is not enough. That's not mission. That's invitational. It's hospitality. It's nice. But what about the people that don't come? Don't we have a responsibility to go to them? And so the question for you in Manchester is what kind of people don't come to church? You know, you look at your visitors on the Sunday. Who does come? Okay, great. Let's serve those people. But who doesn't come? Okay, if they don't come to us, how do we go to them? Does that make sense? And so it's, it's, it's the whole thing of, it's not about come, it's about go. It's not about Nimrod, it's about Abraham. So who are those people? Who are the people that would never come near your church? Sometimes we think our church is accessible because we have a good website and a disability ramp. But that's not the total sum of accessibility. What about 
cultural accessibility, emotional accessibility, social accessibility. There are people who don't come because they're ashamed to come. There are people who don't come because if they walk in, they just won't understand what's going on. There are people who don't come because it's so foreign to them. Yeah. So what about those people? So how do we go to them? So that's the foundation, really, of trying to think about mission. And it's true with world mission as well. So some people say to me, you know, Muslims are coming to the UK, so you don't need to go to Turkey. And I think, yeah, it's true, but there's not even a million Muslims. There's not even a million Turks in the UK, and there's 75 million Turks in Turkey. So sure, there's, you know, there's, there's people coming to the UK, but what about all the ones that aren't? Do you see what I mean? And so it's not okay just to go, let's just have the people who come. It's what about going? Number four, what we see from Abraham is that going is scary. So he leaves everything. He leaves all of his protection and him and his family go and they're very vulnerable and they face many difficulties. And if you read the story of Abraham's life, it was a very difficult life. And any mission in the Bible always looks like that. It's vulnerable. It's scary. In the book of Acts, you see people getting attacked. You see people getting put in prison. It's difficult for them. It's not safe. And um, Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out like lambs among wolves. I'm sorry. That's a terrible strategy. (laughs) You're supposed to be the shepherd. That is a terrible strategy. What happens if you send lambs among wolves? They get eaten. It, it doesn't seem logical. Yeah? And what Abraham leaving everything and just wandering around with his family, never settling and having a home, it doesn't seem logical, but it's in the Bible. Number five, the goal of mission is indigenous expression of ancient truth. So contextualization is vital. So the gospel doesn't change, but it looks different everywhere. So it's not just that churches look different. You know, we play different musical instruments in different countries. It's not just that the surface changes. Actually, everything about Christianity changes in a different place. So... Leadership, for example, is not like riding a bicycle. Okay? I've ridden a bike in eight different countries. And generally, it was pretty much the same bunch of skills. I know how to ride a bike in London, so I can ride a bike anywhere. India was probably the scariest. There was a lot of cows. Um, but riding a bike anywhere is pretty much the same. And a lot of people say, oh, leadership is like that. You can learn leadership skills... And then we can parachute you into the jungle in Papua New Guinea. And because you have a gift of leadership, you can lead the local people. No, you can't. You don't know where the local people want to go. You don't speak their language. You don't understand how to navigate through the jungle. You can't. So leadership is not just a, a decontextual gift. I have a gift of leadership. Leadership is to do with the people that you're with and responding to those people. Now, this is really, really important, okay? Because otherwise, because you guys are here because you want to study the Bible and you want to express some form of leadership in your ministry or your place of work or whatever. So don't believe people when they tell you, oh, yeah, well, you can study 
leadership from America and use it in Manchester. It's not true. Because leadership looks different there than here. Okay? And one Japanese sociologist said, you know, Japan will never produce a charismatic leader. And she was really proud of that. We don't want Japanese leaders. Because in our culture, everybody being the same and uniformity and togetherness is really important. And we don't want someone big to try and be bigger than everybody else. The nail that sticks up gets banged down, they say in Japan. So it's a completely different kind of leadership. You need to be able to build trust and build people together. And yeah, it's not like, here's a vision, let's go. So it's really important. And actually, it's true with theology as well. All theology is contextual. The Bible doesn't change. There's only one Bible. But different people in different countries are asking different questions. And when they read the Bible, they observe different things. So you take the story of Joseph, okay? So the story of, you know the story of Joseph. If you ask an American what the story of Joseph is about, they'll say, oh, it's the American dream. It's Hollywood, rags to riches. He starts beating up and he ends up being the prime minister. It's like every Hollywood movie, it's got a happy ending. Yeah, they, they love Joseph. That's why we make a musical out of Joseph, because it's, it's got a lovely Hollywood ending. Most stories in the Bible don't have such a good ending, you know, but Joseph's great. No one makes a movie out of the life of Jacob. <laughs> or the book of Judges, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you ask a German what they see in the, book of, in the story of Joseph, they'll say, ah, the most important gift is administration. You need to be organized. Because <laughs> Joseph was organized. He was a good German. Okay? If you ask an Indian what they see in the book of Joseph, they'll say, I see fate. Joseph is just blown along like a, a, a leaf on the river, and Kismet just took him along. Fate just took him along until he ended up in the place he needed to be. If you ask an African what they see in the book of Joseph, they'll say, ah, wherever a man goes in the world, he never forgets his family. If you ask an English person, most English sermons... On the, book of jo- on the story of Joseph turn on two things okay, one is ah, you end up with this um, kind of king who feeds all the nations of the world so you see the imperialist thing come to the surface yeah, we are privileged, let's feed all the poor people or you hear all the sermons about sex, you know Joseph and the affair with Potiphar's wife it's only like eight verses but you hear all the sermons on that because for English people they notice the sex If you ask a Turkish person about the story of Joseph, they, they, they love the bit where he's been thrown in the pit and he's suffering and he's having pain because that's all Turks, they all feel like that. All Turkish movies are just sad and about being beaten up and people leave the cinema crying, you know, because they just feel sorry for themselves all the time. They love that bit. They're like, oh, Joseph is like us. And the, the bit at the end where he forgives his brothers, Turks hate that bit. <laughs> He's so weak. No one should forgive like that. He's such a weak guy. Why did he capitulate in the end? So the story doesn't change. But every, theology comes from the questions that you're asking. And every culture is asking different questions. And so people see different things in the Bible. And so the danger for us is all the books on our bookshelf were written by 
English people or Americans, and so we're only addressing those questions. And when I meet Muslims who have four wives and they come to faith and they say, what do I do? What do you do? Because <laughs> Wayne, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which I love, but it was written in America, he doesn't talk about polygamy. So, do you divorce the other three wives? But God says, I hate divorce. And you look in the Bible and there were lots of guys that had several wives. So what do you do? And so one of the wonders of mission, and maybe those are extreme examples for you, you might hit them in your context, you might have Muslims come to faith in Manchester who have several wives and you need to decide what to do. You know, David Livingstone, the famous missionary to Africa, he only baptised one person in his entire life. And the reason was, he was really strong on polygamy. So he said to people, if you want to get baptised, you need to get rid of all your other wives and then I'll baptise you. But the challenge was, it was like always a tribal leader, and all the other wives were wives from the other tribes around, and they were like peace treaties, like relationships. So if you send all those wives back, all those people are going to attack you. So what do you, it's difficult, it's complicated. The world is complicated. And so even theology is contextual. And the goal of mission is to see a local church emerge that is addressing local questions by handling the Bible, which never changes, and by looking to Jesus Christ, who never changes. But we understand that in different places, people are asking different questions. And so how do we respond to those? Number six, one of the things that we see in Acts is these kind of three phases of mission. So foundation confrontation and multiplication and so the book of Acts if you like is the story of four centers you've got Jerusalem and there's kind of focus on building the church in Jerusalem and then reaching the surrounding area then you have uh, Antioch and you have they go to Antioch and they do church in a different language they do it in Greek they're reaching different kind of people it looks different in Antioch in Acts 11 and 12 and so there's lots of time laying the foundation there and then you see kind of mission going out from Antioch and Paul's journeys through Turkey and Galatia and all of that. Then you have Ephesus. And again, it kind of slows down and there's all the work of laying a foundation and building, uh, finding the right contextual solution for Ephesus. And then you have multiplication from there. And then finally, Rome. And every time you have three things that happen. The first is the foundation laying stage. Now, this is the really slow Boring. And you see this in any church plant. So your story in Manchester would be this. The first few years are really slow. You know, you're laying a foundation, you're digging, you're putting shape in, you're figuring out how church is going to work in this area. You, you spend lots, and that's lots of teaching, lots of digging deep, very slow, very painful. That piece of work, yeah? And then you come to, after foundation, you come to confrontation, which is where you actually really start hitting local strongholds, local spiritual issues, things in people's lives and really seeing those kind of broken through, that, almost that kind of spiritual warfare aspect. And then you come to rapid multiplication, where something seems to break and then you get to, hey, we're really into our stride now and now we're seeing lots of people come to faith and lots of churches planted and, and the kind of running of the gospel. And if you read any missionary biography like Hudson Taylor going to China, you'll see this. It's like really seven years till he baptised his first person, Hudson Taylor. Seven years. Most of us would have given up and gone home by then. You know, you're writing home. How many people have you seen saved? None. 
oh, well, we're not going to send you any money anymore. You're obviously rubbish at this church party business. You know, so the, the foundation stage is slow and painful. And in Acts, interestingly in Acts, we see it getting slower. So when they go to Antioch, it says Barnabas and Saul came in and they taught for one year. Okay? When they go to Corinth, it says Paul stayed in Corinth and he taught for one year and six months. That foundation laying stage. When he goes to Ephesus, it says Paul was in Ephesus and he taught for how long? Two years. You'd think Paul would get better and it, it would get faster and more efficient, but actually it's almost like it's getting slower because the more unreached a place is, the slower it is. And Paul was becoming more circumspect and going, I don't want this to multiply if the foundation's not right. And so that you get the foundation laying stages, slow, lots of input from outside, lots of work, very little fruit. And then you come to the, the confrontation stage. So we see it in, in Acts 19 in Ephesus, where Paul has been there teaching and doing all the right things, but there doesn't seem to be much happening. But then you have this kind of, you know the moment where you have the guys try and cast out a demon and then they get beaten up and they run away naked, the seven sons, of that whole thing. And, you know, um, Jesus I know and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? That, that story. But after that, it's like something has happened spiritually. People have understood that Diana doesn't protect them, that they, their local God is powerless and, and she doesn't, and it's like she gets toppled. And then after that, we see a massive multiplication and the gospel is preached to the whole province of Asia. And, and so something breaks and then they go. And so in every place, in every context, we see these three stages happen in mission. And so our final point here, reaching the unreached, is slow, expensive, inefficient and requires our best people. So in the Bible, when you see people going into Antioch, you go, man, Barnabas is there, Paul's there, Peter's involved, men from James. Like All the best people are in the unreached city. And sometimes we go to church leaders and we say, have you got any people you want to send to the nations? And they go, oh, yeah, you can have this 18-year-old student, you know. Or like, my number two guy is my helper, and my number three guy is going to do a church plant for us locally, and my number four guy is my future. You can have my number five guy, you know. And you're just like, come on, guys. In a battle, the harder the place the better the people that we should send to that place. And so really the, the call is, come on, let's send some of our best people to some of the hardest places.